and you're drinking wine, a lot of people are so afraid to say the wrong thing. Mm. It's absolutely fine to say what you're experiencing and that there's nothing wrong with that. Our motto is always it's not wrong until it's very wrong. <laughs> right? Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Karen Hahn. Karen, so nice to see and hear you. Who mm-hmm. is our guest this week? Our guest is Miguel de Leon, a sommelier and currently the wine director at my favorite restaurant in New York, Pinch Chinese. He was also the inaugural recipient of the Michelin Guide Sommelier Award in New York City for his work with natural wine and hospitality advocacy. And his knowledge and work with wine, just there's a lot to get into. Okay, great. Before we get into that, though, I have an important question. Which Uh is your favorite of the soup dumplings at Pinch Chinese? Well... I will say if you go there, obviously the pork soup dumplings, they're my personal favorite, but something Mm. that you should really look out for. My fiance is a big mushroom fan and they have a mushroom dumpling that is like incredible. Even if you don't like mushrooms like me, I'm not a mushroom person, but I go there and I think, yeah, this is really good. Oh, Anne's not a mushroom person either. So I'll have to order them and then just put one on her plate and see what happens. Uh, Back to our guest. You know, when I, (laughs) when I picture a sommelier, I think Mm -hmm. of, you know, the starched white button front shirts and a spotless apron and whatever that weird spoon thing is that they have on a gold chain around their neck to taste wine you know they're like the high priests of dining it's very intimidating would you say that that that, that's what miguel is like or are we in for a lot of snooty intimidation from our guests this week Miguel is very, very hip, and he is so cool, but without appearing unapproachable. So I guess in other words, he's kind of the exact opposite of what you're talking about. And I think the work that he does sort of lies in the same vein. In that wine, this field that I think generally suffers from an accessibility issue is something that he makes seem less daunting or less gatekept by money or taste or class. See, this is great because when it comes to wine, I'm like Thomas Hayden Church in Sideways where mm-hmm. someone like describes the complex thing <laughs> and then I just go, mmm, good. Uh, <laughs> speaking of good, do you have a little extra digestive for the Slate Plus listeners? I do indeed. So for Slate Plus, we talked about the wines that across the years have really excited him and made him fall in love with his work. And I will say when we had that conversation, I was like, I have to try these wines too. So I think if you are a fan of wine, or even if you're not like like me, I'm a wine noob, I guess, like that is a very good discussion, I think, to listen in on. Well, that sounds absolutely delicious. And if you want those and other tasty morsels like uh, bonus segments of this show and others, complete exclusive episodes of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood or Slow Burn, or maybe you want complete access behind the paywall on the Mothership site, all that can be yours when you sign up for Slate Plus today. Go to slate.com slash working plus. Now let's listen in on Karen's conversation with sommelier Miguel de Leon. Hi, Miguel. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Hi, Karen. Thank you for having me. I thought I would start our interview by saying you are currently the wine director for my favorite restaurant in New York, Pinch Chinese, which is how we met in the first place. Can you Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about what that job involves? 
So the biggest duty that I have at the restaurant as a wine director is obviously kind of like beverage programming, mm-hmm. making sure that whatever people are drinking matches well with what they're eating. Um, they're having a good time with it if they're just drinking it by themselves and kind of tying a story together with what those things represent. And speaking of making sure that somebody likes what they're drinking, to a certain extent, whether or not a wine or even just food in general is good is subjective and that not everyone's taste is the same. Someone will prefer different things. Their palate will differ. How do you account for that as someone whose job it is to kind of curate this thing? I mean, there's two ways of presenting it, right? Like for, for the, I think the very old traditional model of the wine list was to have as many wines as possible. Mm. And so that's why you'll have these like grand lists of over, you know, over a thousand selections, <laughs> um, bunch of things that are old and from all over the place to really find the right thing for a certain person. I like constraints. I mm-hmm. think for a lot of for a lot of artists also, I think like, you know, constraint breeds creativity. Mm-hmm. And so for that kind of thing, I'm always looking for, well, what's next? What's new? What can we substitute that's interesting? And we, we want to make it as accessible as possible for as many people as possible, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes the approach is like, well, let's just go off left field and really just blow it out of the water so everyone's on an equal level. There's no expectations. There's nothing to kind of worry about. So if I were to say I was serving you wine from, say, like either Maryland or like Virginia or Texas, you probably wouldn't have had wine from any of those places. Mm -hmm. But I think that that sets a good bar for everybody to be like, we're thinking about this Mm -hmm. this way, but we're also looking at it in in like a future kind of driven sense, you know? Yeah. And I wanted to talk about the idea of accessibility in wine as well, because that's something that you do a lot of work around. You've done quite a lot of writing about wine and won the 2022 James Beard Foundation Media Award for personal essay, long form for your essay, It's Time to Decolonize Wine. And to, I guess, start with a slightly broader question, how did you start writing about wine? And do you consider that to be a natural part of being a sommelier? The writing came really from kind of the academic part of wine. So mm-hmm. at least in this industry, and I, and I hope this changes soon, you know, there's a certain requirement of legitimacy where you need to get assessed, certified, and basically be judged on your, your capabilities, right? Right. And that's usually by a jury of people who don't look like you, who don't understand your baggage, who have mm-hmm. no clue about your personal history. Um, and a lot of the time, we're so removed from what we're studying in those places. A lot of the time, we're studying places that we'll never go to. Mm-hmm. Languages will never speak. Winemakers will never meet. And I like upending that expectation. So the essay really came from like a really personal, critical look after George Floyd was murdered and thinking about, well, how, how complicit had I, have I been in this, mm. in this whole thing? And how, how shitty have I felt? in terms of these things when it comes to making other people feel less than or how how little did I do in terms of all of that. Mm-hmm. When that essay was written, it was 2020. It was June 2020, um, after I had just written this thing called Actionable Items for the Wine Community. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was kind of a, a little bit of a call out to say, let's talk about how you haven't been willing to talk about this for so long. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of people who you are not serving, and it's all to make sure that this thing stays a certain way, a certain look, a certain type, a certain kind. And so I basically the writing, everything that I've written from that point forward really stemmed from that. And, you know, really speaking from personal experience about a lot of uh, what I've experienced in 
in terms of like bigotry and racism, even like homophobia in my spaces that I used to work in. Mm -hmm. So it it was a really big shift. Um, I never intended to be a writer, but you know, I think it also comes with the skill of like writing a, a tasting note, for example, that was concise, that delivered yeah. um, a very clear idea of what I what I was experiencing. Um, but like you said, experience is subjective. And so even then, I realized that there were shortcomings in terms of the language that I was using. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is too broad a question to ask, but I'm curious, like how you would describe ideally, like, like, what can the average person do, like, in order to try to help, like, move the wine space in a more kind of equitable direction? We got to remember, first of all, that wine is an agricultural product. Mm-hmm. Every time you open a bottle of wine, thousands of decisions were made. So someone decided to plant grapes somewhere where they're mm-hmm. probably not great to grow, which is kind of what grapes need. Grapes are marginal plants. They They've historically just grown on like the edges of farms and like wine was the bonus you know and then now we're in this like industrial scale farming of putting a marginal plant in a place where it's it's gonna need care irrigation land there's other we have other problems clearly but if that's what we're gonna (laughs) if that's that's what we're gonna say we're gonna invest our energy and money into um there's we also got to remember that like the the people making those decisions also have to be beholden to that kind of decision making. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you say that you picked a certain day in August and you're you're realizing that it's coming earlier and earlier and earlier, well your migrant labor force is also responsible for the rest of the things that are growing around that same time. So, what's what's more important that your grapes get grown into wine or the people get fed? Mm-hmm. The second thing is uh, like is that labor force like represented well? Like do they have health insurance are you keeping them away from ice um are they getting paid first of all (laughs) you know and not just that but like a living wage um and these are questions that like sommeliers never ask (laughs) yeah these are questions that like you would never expect someone like a wine director to ask right because a lot of the times we've we've been asked to say well here's a bottle of wine it costs us x amount of dollars when it comes to us and then i have to sell it to you at x amount of markup and here here you go yada 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 i tasted it it's good that's not enough anymore, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why this push is so, it feels so new to a lot of people, but it also feels so natural for a lot of people to start asking these kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, we're so obsessed as sommeliers about soil types and, and what's <laughs> underneath the grapes, you know? And that, like, we had nothing to do with that. that that's yeah. 10,000 years in the making, and that's what's underground. But what we do have control over is making sure that the people who tend to land above ground have we, we can continue to tell their stories well. And I think that that's that's the bit that, that I think really gets me. Um, you know, as a sommelier, I don't really I don't make wine. <laughs> right. I make wine lists. But at, I think at that same point, well, why the writing feels so easy to come to me is that I just tell stories. I tell stories for a lot of yeah. people. And. I tell other people's stories. I tell the story of my restaurant. I tell the story of how the marriage of what someone makes and what I make in my place, how there's kismet in that, how when you step into that restaurant, you you get transported to somewhere or when you when you take a bite and then you take a drink and then you you go somewhere you've never been before. That's that's the kind of thing that I I live for. Like yeah. reading a person, kind of finding out what they want to eat, how to nourish you in the right way. Yeah. And as as someone who's conscious about this kind of thing and as someone who curates and creates these wine lists, 
In terms of finding out the story of each wine and making sure that it is being made by people who care about what they're doing and the people that they employ, how much of it can you find out like through research and how much of it kind of depends on these companies or organizations like being transparent with you when you ask them what they're doing? Some people don't know. Mm. Again, this is a new thing that we're trying to ask people. Uh, even the healthcare question is is a little fraught. Yeah. But the fact that you're asking makes them have answers. Mm. And so that's one of the things that I think is helpful. Um, it's a push for people who distribute wine to make sure that that information's handy. And if I can't find it through that method, then I'll, I'll reach out to the wineries directly sometimes to ask, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and to return to a little bit of, of our conversation about accessibility, I feel like one of the things that tends to be a little bit of a gate when it comes to wine is this impression of it as a field where you kind of need to have money or some level of wealth in order to engage with it, where there's, I, I think the stereotype is like the more expensive a bottle is, like the better it's going to be or the more high quality it is. How do you think about price in terms of your work as a sommelier and choosing wines for pinch and choosing wines for yourself and your friends even? Like, how does price factor into that conversation? Access is the name of the game again here, right? Yeah. So I want to make sure that the, what people are drinking, um, they can enjoy again. Mm -hmm. Or if we're going to call it a special occasion, that the wine's a special occasion and not that it's surrounded by anything else. Whether or not it's like Valentine's or yeah. it's a birthday or whatever, that's great. Like, celebrate however you want to. But I'm also telling people that like sometimes if you have a really nice bottle of wine, that's, that's a nice occasion to also come together and, and commune and, and talk mm -hmm. about something that's artful and something that you can be critical of. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm going to be like a financial guru for somebody who's mm -hmm. coming into wine, but I do want to make sure that like when, whenever you're drinking, that you're drinking something that you like, and that's the most important thing, yeah. and that you're willing to spend that much to make yourself feel that good. If it's something that you can get around the corner for four bucks, yeah. what's it? to me, it makes no difference. To me, like... I can, I can still talk to you about those wines at the same time. Mm -hmm. Maybe one has less of a storytelling narrative than the other. Maybe one has less of a human connection than the other. Mm. At the end of the day, though, like, there's still somebody on either side of that, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of mythos that comes around, like, wine and the wine culture and how to drink and all of that. But we get to decide that culturally, whether or not that's important or not. And I think that that's what's really cool is that there's a there's a really romantic notion that like the standard size of a bottle is the what the capacity of a glass blower's lung is. So it's about seven hundred fifty mm. milliliters, right? So there's a romance that we can talk about the human connection in that. But there's also the romance that bottles are meant to be shared, right? We say mm -hmm. that there's five standard portions in a bottle. If you're one person and you're drinking five standard bottles, you're blotto and in, in two, <laughs> two and a half, especially if you're not eating. But mm -hmm. I think what makes it more magic, and I think what what you and I can can say yes to is that every time you and I have shared a bottle of wine, for example, mm -hmm. there's something else that gets brought up or yeah. that that kind of like swirls in the air or or whatever else that, that like there's this charge where like, okay, this this is helping us kind of like channel this energy into each other in a way yeah. that's like way more magical and mystical and 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 really cool. And and you know what? Like I'm happy that there are technical sheets and and all the stuff that we can kind of do lab analysis for in wine. <laughs> but that's the kind of stuff that you can't bottle. You can't you can't teach that to somebody. And I think that that it's absolutely okay to have like feelings wrapped up in wine again. Like it's absolutely fine. Yeah. We'll be back with more of Karen's conversation with Miguel de Leon after this. 
What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com slash working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hey, uh, working fans. Isaac Butler here. Just wanted to say a couple things real quick. If you're enjoying this week's episode, please don't forget to subscribe. That way you will never miss an episode of Working. And if you've already subscribed and you love the show and you want to help us out, please leave a rating, a review, a check mark, a star, a meow meow bean, whatever it is they have on your podcast app of choice to let people know that this is a show of quality. And if you want to be part of the show, you could write us at Working at Slate or call us at 304-933-WORK and let us know how you're doing. What are some creative problems you have that we can help you with? What are some amazing creative triumphs you've had that you want to share with our listeners? Who are some guests you'd like to hear from? Well, just let us know. Once again, that's working at slate.com or call us and leave a voicemail at 304-933-WORK. All right, enough out of me. Now let's get back to Karen's discussion with sommelier Miguel de Leon. So I know that the training and studying to become a sommelier is very intensive, but I know, I I would say, again, next to nothing about the actual specifics of it. So would you mind telling us a little bit about that whole process? Like what, what kind of studying you did, like once you decided that this was a path you wanted to go down? 
Yeah, let me just also bring up the caveat that this is something that I completely do not want anyone else to go through. <laughs> <laughs> But this is also kind of why we're we're building curriculums for ourselves, right? So Wait, normally, why is this not a path that you would want someone to go down? I, it's still a very Eurocentric white supremacist kind gotcha. of space. Yeah. Um, it's it's very much not listening to the current needs of of the membership that it requires. It's not keeping up to pace with globalization. It's not acknowledging the fact that things like social media and the internet have impacts mm. on wine. Mm -hmm. um, it's also kind of really discounting the wine that I use on my daily vernacular, which is natural wine. Like it, it it's barely talked about in those kinds of spaces. Yeah. But to speak about those spaces, normally you. For say like uh, a, a regular certification, it's about a ten to twelve week course um, where you study maybe about three to five classroom hours a week, and then there's personal study involved in that. Um, you go through the major regions of the world. Usually, you start with France because mm -hmm. it's how everybody wants to re reference their wines, um, and then you go around the world. So usually, it's Europe, and you spend the majority of your time in Europe, and then you go everywhere else. Mm -hmm. And you learn party tricks, like learning how to smell a wine and tell you what that wine is, or taste the wine and tell you what it's made mm. from and and where it comes from, um, what vintage it is. To me, if I if I did that to a guest, <laughs> it, I would be like, "It's a magic trick. Here you go." <laughs> But to me, the most important thing that I learned from those kinds of spaces is like, what does bad wine taste like? Like, what does faulty wine taste like? Yeah. And faulty in a sense that like this was made wrong. There's something off with this wine. There's this is wine that you should not be consuming. Mm. That's the most important thing that I learned from those spaces. Honestly, everything else you can learn from. Just if you're eager, I I don't I really don't care how much experience somebody has coming onto sommelier team. But mm -hmm. two of my sommeliers have never gone through certification. Mm -hmm. But we teach them kind of how do you approach this thing from a very empathetic way because yeah. ultimately that's what I'm trying to cultivate right in terms of the hospitality of the thing I just want to make sure that the person who's in front of me likes what they're drinking likes what they're eating is having a good time and maybe some of those spaces especially in certification and legitimacy your whole body is considered right and so mm -hmm. um, in terms of getting your certification for example Up, up until very recently, there was a dress code, a gender dress code for men and women. Okay. Um, you had to run service um, in a way that was like correct. And again, the thing that I hate about that is if the framework is always wrong. And I really want to emphasize that. Like the, mm -hmm. it's correct for who? Right. And because we're always trying to understand these in like these very kind of like fine dining, white tablecloth kind of spaces. And yeah. like the, the majority of restaurants in the world don't, don't look like that they don't yeah. they don't operate like that but a lot of the restaurants in the world have wine so why are we really confining ourselves to this mm -hmm. kind of like small subset of people who are going to judge you who are going to say well i and i got this note for myself personally a couple times that that i was um my personality was too forward which is like their coded way of saying that like you were a little too gay on the table oh, and so wow. when you deny yourself and you deny yeah. like the your own personhood in order to kind of legitimize yourself in the profession right. that that eats away at you for a while um and that's why i don't I, i was like thank you i'll earn the certification because i know that i can fucking do it yeah but it, it's very similar to my college diploma i was like here you go mom hang this up on your wall <laughs> i'm never gonna use it yeah i'm never gonna use it. like there, there's obviously there's tools that i think are helpful But 
even as someone who like lives in the United States of America, my experience with American wine in terms of my certification experience was very little. Mm. Maybe two, maybe two weeks um, where we spent time in a classroom talking about wine from California, wine from Washington, wine from Oregon, yeah. maybe wine from New York. And then we don't talk about anything else. There's 50 states. They all make wine, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a lot of people are, are want to kind of do the thing where they're like, oh, it's made in the United States. It's probably not going to be great. The value goes back to the idea that this is an agricultural product. If you're willing to pay for what you're willing to pay for ethically, sustainably, organically, whatever, whatever kind of rubric you want, like money is politics and your dollar goes a long way in saying yes to people who make wine here in in the Americas that we don't ever study in wine classes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that to wit, I want to shout out some of the winemakers that are like in Wisconsin and Texas and Ohio and Colorado um, in Pennsylvania that are uh, completely un- uh, undersung, overlooked, and mm-hmm. underrepresented and wineless all over, the, all over the country. Even in New York, we have a big chip on our shoulder about putting New York wines on the menu. We're a world-class city making, uh, making world-class wine in our state. I don't understand why I, as an American sommelier, have to wait nine weeks for someone to tell me about how good the wine is here in this place or how it's just pretending to be French. And I, I, <laughs> I, I think that we have to be past that conversation. Yeah, but it's good that you are in a position to be able to affect some some kind of change like in this space, especially as you mentioned, like you've hired a couple of people to be Somalis for the restaurant who don't have this formal training. And to that end, I, I want to ask, like, what do you look for in a Somalia? Like, what do you makes a good sommelier if they get excited about wine mm-hmm. that's enough to me that's usually enough because if i can if i can have them channel that kind of energy and like to an interaction with a guest i've done my job mm-hmm. that means that they're already curious about something yeah the other thing is that they just have to be able to connect you know a lot of the times for the psalms i i don't ask them what their favorite wine is i think that that's a dumb question <laughs> what's more exciting to me is like what, when was the last time that you had a wine that made you feel something? Mm-hmm. And whether or not that was, that's like happy, like disappointed, whatever. Like, <laughs> there's, there's a way that I can make sure that like you're thinking about that in a way that like impacted you personally. Because again, I'm, all, all I'm trying to do as a sommelier is to tell someone else a story. And if I can cultivate your empathy into making this person main character at the whole time, great. Like, mm-hmm. let's, let's do that. So clearly one of the kind of driving ethos for you in terms of wine and like finding people who are equally passionate about it has to do like with passion, with your emotional connection to this and your ability to sort of convey that to other people. Is there any degree to which you think like there is still technical ability that is necessary for this, like a particularly refined palate, like an ability to be able to taste and then distinguish these different flavors that you are experiencing? Absolutely. I mean, there's there's still... A skill that that is involved here, yeah. right? But the framework for kind of getting that skill out, I think, is the big question. And again, like these legitimizing certification bodies don't really do that well, right? One of the things that that I always emphasize for my folks is that when you're drinking wine, a lot of people are so afraid to say the wrong thing mm. in these kinds of spaces, right? And so you'll you'll get classes that are full of people and they're quiet, but you get eight of us in a room and like, all right. What do you taste? What do you smell? Yeah. And it's it's crossfire. And I think that that's, that's what's important is that you're cultivating this idea that it's absolutely fine to say what you're experiencing mm-hmm. and that there's nothing wrong with that. And our, our motto is always, it's not wrong until it's 
very wrong, <laughs> right? And so, like, if, if someone's like, "Oh, this red wine tastes like bananas," I'd be like, "Okay, well, let's look at that. Something might be wrong with that with that wine." Like, usually, like, right? And so, things that have a, a logical pattern to them, yeah, we, we want to start to establish. Um, but literally everything else, you can you can learn while you're working, um, or wh- while you're experiencing bottles, or when you go away and you know, drink another glass of wine at another restaurant. You, yeah. That thing never turns off. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think, I think but the more important part of that is making sure that like whenever we do talk about the tasting note aspect of it all, that we're looking, again, zooming out a little bit and say, okay, well, what is this trying to tell us? Why is this important? And in terms of like why we're drinking it, why is this important in this space? Like we need to always drive context as part of that. Wine can't live in a vacuum. It absolutely cannot. Like, in the same way that a restaurant can't operate without guests. Like, there needs to be some sort of... The, the two-wayness of wine needs to be overemphasized. And that's not a thing that people teach yet. Yeah, well, speaking of which, you you advised the UC Davis uh, Viticulture and Enology Program for its seminar work in the field of critical wine studies. What goes into your... I guess, advisorship, like what do you think about in terms of the curriculum, in terms of how you want to talk to the students, in terms of what you want to teach in that particular environment? So in terms of Davis, a lot of the students come out with BS or MS degrees. Uh-huh. This, was the, this was the first time ever when we conducted this first seminar in 2020. It was crazy town because it was the first <laughs> time that these students had gone back into humanities class, basically. Mm. And, you know, we're teaching these people to like, analyze numbers in a lab and talk about wine chemistry. And again, those are great things for the advancement of wine as a culture. But the other half of that is also something that we got to consider. Is that, you know, maybe you don't go to Davis to be a sommelier, but you can, maybe hopefully after taking one of those courses, you'll understand why it's more important for you to learn Spanish when you're going through the California track instead Mm -hmm. of learning French when you're learning how to make wine. Ultimately, the connections that you make on a human level are, are way more important. And also talking about impact, well, if we're going to talk about California and, and agriculture, like it, I think it's almost, we're taught this in almost every social studies class that in the 1960s, it was grape workers that started strikes for, for unions mm. um, and how migrant workers came together to do that. We forget sometimes that there are still very real ramifications to when when these things get decided and why particularly American wine feels so expensive. Um, and it's because we're just, we're, we're trying to be as transparent as possible with some of the labor stuff, especially for smaller producers. And what's heartbreaking is that a lot of the folks that look at wine currently, the divorce from that mm-hmm. is this idea of like, it's a points culture. You know, right. like we rate wine because it's a, it's a product that's meant to be looked at as an investment almost. Mm-hmm. It, it has a social cachet, cultural cachet, some sort of like, oh, I know what this wine tastes like because I've bought X amount right. of dollars for it. And like you said earlier, there is a financial kind of tie back to that. Mm-hmm. And what's really gnarly is that the the society and, and, and I'll be honest, like even wine culture right now doesn't want to reconcile that. There's no... There's no way to kind of put that on a wine list without you feeling like you're being heavy-handed about yeah. this is a political thing, you know. It, but, but again, like it, it's this the soft power stuff that I think is really interesting because that's where sommeliers land. Mm-hmm. We're the ones who kind of like know this way, mm-hmm. know this way. 
I, I think that's one of the tough things in, in I think almost every field where it's like you want to talk about this like necessary action that has to happen to make every field more equitable and kind of more knowledgeable of like the history that's currently unfolding and also everything that's come before it without making like hammering the point home for people, mm-hmm. especially people who don't want to hear it. Um, especially like when you are hearing your wine list or when you are writing, like how do you personally like try to achieve that kind of balance? Well, a little bit of sass goes a long way. I'm sure you've looked at the wine list at Pinch a couple times and you're like, mm-hmm. okay, this guy's a little bit of a kook. And and I think that that's fine. But again, like I, I want to make sure that like the story that I'm telling isn't to anyone's detriment. Mm-hmm. Like that my point of view is can be the thing that's sacrificed if I can at least showcase, you know, really good wine from really good people, um, from really good places. And so it's crucial that like when I'm writing... Or, or making a wine list, for example, that, and again, I do this completely differently than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Like a traditional wine list would probably list it by geography, by style. So, you know, usually it's like champagne first and like, here's all your French right. wine and then here's all of this. And then, and then here's the red wine section, et cetera, et cetera. I don't do that at the restaurant. We're mavericks when it comes to that. <laughs> like we put. No part and parcel to geography. Uh, we talk about wine in terms of its body and specificity first. So from lightest to fullest, that's how we organize the wine list mm-hmm. in many sections. And then also kind of if there needs to be some sort of talking point, we'll emphasize that. So if a wine's made by uh, a woman, for example, we star that on the menu and say, this is something that you need to pay attention to. And people are like, well, why Why are you just starring like women-owned wines? Like, well, to make you see how different the gender difference is, mm-hmm. um, to also make you see that, like, I'm just talking about one aspect of the intersectionality of things yeah. that we could be talking about, you know? Um, and, th- and then I, don't, I also don't want to make this thing where, like, we tokenize people. Um, there, there's great wine lists out in the world that do a lot more kind of, like, socially conscious stuff than I do. Um, there's a great restaurant here in New York called Have and Mar where they're their wine list is almost, I think it's like 90% women made. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great little wine bar in Greenpoint called Coast and Valley where they overemphasize and overindex on who's making this wine. So mm-hmm. the humanity gets gets to be spotlit yeah. on top of the fact that the wine is good. And there, there's ways that we can do that when we're writing and, and thinking about it very interestingly. Because, again, I can talk to you about a place in France for forever that you're never going to go to. But wouldn't it be so much nicer if I can say, yeah, you can take the train to this place, <laughs> like, from Grand Central and be there in two and a half hours. Yeah. Like, that, I think that's way more impactful for somebody to be like, yeah, you can meet these people yeah. who are making these wines. You can, they, they can come here. <laughs> and a lot of the times, so that's, that's also why we overemphasize the idea that, like, you know, the people that we make relationships with, the people who are making these wines, the people who are cultivating that land, they're the ones that, that have the first go on that. And... I want to make sure that like I'm doing them service on the wine lists. And I have a final question. You mentioned, of course, that you don't make wine personally, but would you ever want to create your own wine? And if you did, what what would your ideal vision of it be? I have thought about this early and often, <laughs> except for the pandemic. For the last few years, I've been going out to California every September to like learn how to make wine. Mm-hmm. I'd probably make something from a hybrid variety, so wines that don't look like Cabernet or Merlot or Riesling or whatever else. So something that can be grown in a lab that can be a little bit more climate conscious. 
I like stuff that's like really dumb and flirty and delicious. Um, I don't want wines that I intend to age. I want wines that I make and I drink and then it's, mm-hmm. that's it. That's done. And again, that, that, I think that comes back to, you know, of having been a potter, having been like a writer. Like I, there's, there's the creation aspect, which is really interesting. Like for me, process is king. Um, but I think there's also a really interesting thing to come out of that where like I'm not really all that precious about the final product. Mm-hmm. Or honestly, if it wasn't wine, I'd probably make like gin because mm. that's that's just me. <laughs> 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 and that's the poison that I like drinking. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've opened my eyes to so much and it's always such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Karen. It was a lovely time. When we come back, Karen and I will discuss what we can learn from Miguel's focus on accessibility in our own work and lives. That and more coming right up. Karen, I was really struck by how, you know, based in part on what was clearly a terrible experience of getting his certification, Miguel has been really laser focused on living his values in his work, particularly when it comes to accessibility and opening the doors to people who might not normally think of wine as something they want to get into. Yeah, and this is maybe a a cynical thought, but I do think that this kind of experience actually is a jumping off point for a lot of us. Like we realize, oh, this shouldn't be like this. And then we start looking around to see who feels similarly, what kind of work is being done to change the environment, what we personally can do to have an effect on a field. On a certain level, it's, for instance, why people tend to unionize, specifically to ensure nobody goes through the bad things that they've gone through. And on a more creative side, I think it's why you see people who have been historically marginalized coming together to work together because you know these people have had similar experiences and want the same end goal and result and are willing to work with you to try to achieve it. Yeah, totally. And one major component of that, although Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure if you guys use this exact phrase, but is gatekeeping, right? Mm -hmm. And I was quite moved by how he talked about wanting to consider the ways that he himself is complicit in that. Uh, Complicit in, I think the phrase he used is making people feel less than. Mm -hmm. That is a very easy thing to do with wine. And it's also a super easy thing to do with art or writing about art because, you know, we, you and I've talked about this. We do have expertise. That mm-hmm. expertise is hard won and that expertise really does matter. So how do you have that expertise but not perpetuate the negative sides of gatekeeping? I think a lot of it has to do with mindset and to a certain degree common sense because there's nothing inherently wrong with knowing a lot about a certain thing. But it's the way that you present that to somebody else that is important. Like if you're throwing around a bunch of jargon specific to your field, are you aware that the people you're talking to might not know what you mean? Or are you doing that on purpose because you like to feel smarter than the people around you? You have to be willing to be open and bring people into the conversation you're having and actually extend a hand to them. And you have to be more open-minded yourself. Like I think the clearest example I've seen like this in cultural criticism, the field that I'm the most familiar with, is the way that people tend to dismiss entire genres or movies or shows specifically because they don't think newer works or works geared toward a specific audience fit into what's already considered canon and also will insist that certain works are imperative to be familiar with or else someone's an ignoramus. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's good for anyone going into a field to do the work to educate themselves on it. 
But starting from like Paddington rather than 2001 A Space Odyssey doesn't mean that you're any less or more clever than someone who's doing the inverse. Like anything that sparks passion has value and will bring people into the field. If you haven't seen Paddington 2, I mean, you what should are you watch Paddington. For? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another aspect of this is what Miguel described as rethinking the kinds of questions he asks. For mm-hmm. him, that's questions about the labor practices that produce the agricultural product that is wine, which makes sense because he's the one buying the wine. You and me and, yeah, I don't know, I imagine most of our listeners aren't necessarily in the buyer position when it comes to what we're creating. So what kinds of questions should we be thinking about or rethinking as we consider our creative process? I think that in our positions, the big things that we have to consider are what we want to show to other people, whether it's saying that X movie was an influence on your work or even just telling other people to go watch something because you liked it. No matter what circumstance you're in, you have a little bit of that buyer power when it comes to talking to other people about any given work because word of mouth is a big deal, especially for, say, a smaller movie rather than the next big blockbuster. Mm. For instance, like one of the big contentious things about this year's Oscars is Andrea Rice having gotten a nomination for an indie movie called To Leslie for Best Actress. And the thing is, like, that campaign happened specifically because of word of mouth, because a lot of people, specifically celeb friends, granted, in in, in that instance, were talking about it. But if they hadn't, no one would know that this movie exists. But now they do. Right. Except what everyone else does is they have a studio and they have people the studio has paid to do it. And so that is not as gauche, right, or as tacky or whatever as doing it yourself. But, Mm -hmm. you know, to Leslie had no money to spend on an Oscar Mm -hmm. campaign. And I think that's at the heart of the anxiety of why people are pissed. It's like, how dare someone who doesn't have the resources behind them go and Mm -hmm. get this Mm -hmm. thing that we spend a gajillion dollars on getting for our people every year? Mm -hmm. Which, of course, brings up the next issue, which is money, you know, which you all talked about. It's a constant problem in the arts. Most of the art we make is both too expensive to consume And the people who make it are usually really underpaid. You know, Mm. like I worked in theater. If people understood how little actors make off Broadway, (laughs) I mean, it's crazy how little money they make off Broadway. And yet the audience members are paying over a hundred bucks a ticket and those tickets go nowhere close to paying for what that production costs. I mean, uh, in a lot of fields, it's a real problem. How do you make your art affordable while also making enough money to live? Yeah, we talk about money so much, but really it's just unavoidable. Unfortunately, I don't personally have a solution to this much larger crisis, but I think at least some of it comes down to wages on the whole and how much we're willing to pay for art. Like as of this taping, the crew at, for instance, Saturday Night Live are about to strike because they're underpaid. Everyone in my peer group in media is underpaid. I was underpaid. And some execs are grossly overpaid. True. Sometimes it is true that the money just isn't there. Like I think we hear this a lot when we're like, hey, like, can we get a raise or like, can we get larger, like, cost of living, salary increases, and they're just like, we don't have the money to pay for it. Sometimes it's true, but sometimes it isn't. And in those cases, <laughs> maybe if people were getting paid more, they'd also be willing to spend more. And I, I was like, I can't believe you're asking me this question like I'm going to solve the entire world's financial straits. <laughs> oh, no, 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 not at all. I don't expect you to solve anything. It's more like I've been beating my head against this question for my yeah. entire professional life. I'm asking it more out of exasperation. Yeah. 
I had a friend uh, in my 20s who made these like bespoke kind of gothy kind of Edward Gorey-ish handmade marionettes. Ooh. Um, and they were like, they were not cheap. I don't remember the price point, but they were not cheap. And at one point he was like, yeah, but I once did a cost breakdown of the amount of time it takes me to make one of these. Mm-hmm. And I would make more money if I worked at McDonald's. Like it breaks down to under wow. minimum wage because they're just yeah. so hard to make. Um, you know, so it's just, it, it's a real problem. We do not, uh, have a solution except I will say mm-hmm. if you are listening to this and you are in a position to pay someone for their creative labor and pay yeah. more for their creative labor please do it they need it yeah I was also really struck by this quote from his own training you know I'm not entirely sure what the question here exactly is I just found it really powerful like I actually paused mm-hmm. the interview and sat with it for a little bit oh. and then went back <laughs> to it which was uh, you know so I just want to highlight it because if we're going to talk about inclusion he said this thing about when you deny your own personhood in order to legitimize yourself in the yeah. profession that really eats away at you mm-hmm. and I guess I also want to flip it to those of us who are in a place of legitimacy to just really consider those moments when you might be demanding that people deny their personhood you know how do we invite people to contribute the totality of their being how do we let people know that we want them as them to have a place at the table you know i think about this a lot on the first day of class when i'm teaching of like how do Mm -hmm. you make sure that everyone you know i say explicitly to my students i want you not some like random college drone i want you with your life experience anyway i just think if you're ever in a point of managing or leading a process it's an important question to consider To be frank, I I think it comes down largely to those who are in positions of power, because in my experience in media, this has come up a lot. For instance, Black writers are only reached out to during Black History Month or to cover movies and shows that feature Black talent. And the same went for me as an Asian American writer. Like my first jobs for several publications were specifically because I was Asian and they needed someone to write about an Asian topic. But when these markers or premieres pass... A lot of these people never end up with staff jobs. They're considered disposable after this token thing has been done. So in part, it requires thinking of people as a whole, as we were sort of saying, rather than just for a specific trait or marker. And I'm sorry to say it, but it also requires some people to make room Mm -hmm. and be conscious of who's in the room. And I think... I don't know. It's a really kind of thorny question to tackle, partially because we are in a stage where we are seeing kind of better representation for all fields across the board. But at the same time, when you're touting something is like, oh, this is the first movie with like a gay character. It's like, are you marginalizing it again in some way by pointing out that it is other in that way? Where it's like, shouldn't it just be like, it is a movie and a gay character just happens to exist inside of it? Like, it's we're trying to get to that point i think but there's a lot of work to be done to get from point a to point b you know one thing i confronted a lot in uh researching the method you know because one of the most important method actors was sydney poitier mm-hmm. is you know exactly how hard it is to be the first yeah you know like all the different burdens that the person who is the first has to carry with them so that other people don't have to deal with it you know and and i think oh, my my hope is is that as you know, diversity becomes more commonplace in in the things that we're creating as we get further and further away from those those kinds of firsts. 
we can reach the point where we don't have to tokenize. Yeah. It sort of reminds me of in last week's episode, you know, um, Sean Hader was talking about in Little America that, you know, some of the, they might have hired a writer in season one because they have the cultural competency to write about, you know, the Nigerian American experience. But now in yeah. season two, they're writing about a different experience. And, you know, that that's part of the thing that, that becomes more interesting and more complex as the show goes on. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you have, please subscribe so that you'll never miss an episode. And yes, here is one last Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on shows like this one, complete bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll get full access behind the paywall. You get a lovely newsletter in your inbox. It's wonderful. Go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up today. Thank you to Miguel de Leon for being our guest this week and to our producer, Cameron Drews, who has notes of dried fruit and coffee with a smooth, slightly acidic finish. Join us next week for Isaac's conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Susan Laurie Parks. Until then, get back to work. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money.